Greetings, listeners. We're back once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits like the Dreamlands, or things of a weird nature, or things that are Lovecraftian leaning, weird fiction, science fiction, horror, learn of terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins and vast staircases that lead down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds and in different time-space continua. From the creation of our galaxy to the death of the sun, this is an exploration of the Cthulhu mythos from the perspective of humans' concept of history. We are the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. You can find us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Season 8. Greetings and welcome to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And between episodes, let's see... 107 and 134, we will be talking about the Beatle. The Beatle, a mystery, is a 1897 horror novel by British writer Richard Marsh. To tell you about it is to spoil it. So check it out, and that'll be going on from now until sometime in December. This episode is brought to you by FoundOutOnClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Subscribe to PGTTCM with D.B. Spitzer and Seraphie. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, we prefer Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Check out the new website over at PGTTCM.com and check out the merch table over at PGTTCM.Threadless.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PGTTCM. Or check us out on YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod, featuring The Hive, Ghost Story, Ghost Processional, Oppressive Gloom, and our theme song, The Chamber. Chapter 30. The Singular Behavior of Mr. Holt. I was standing in the middle of the room. Sidney was between the door and me. Mr. Holt was in the hall, just outside the doorway in which he, so to speak, was framed. As Sidney advanced towards him, He was seized with a kind of convulsion. He had to lean against the side of the door to save himself from falling. Sidney paused and watched. The spasm went as suddenly as it came. Mr. Holt became as motionless as he had just now been the other way. He stood in an attitude of febrile expectancy, his chin raised, his head thrown back, his eyes glancing upwards with the dreadful fixed glare which had come into them ever since we had entered the house. 
He looked to me as if his every faculty was strained in the act of listening. Not a muscle in his body seemed to move. He was as rigid as a figure carved in stone. Presently, the rigidity gave place to what, to an onlooker, seemed causeless agitation. I hear, he exclaimed in the most curious voice I had ever heard. I come. It was as though he was speaking to someone who was far away. Turning, he walked down the passage to the front door. Hello, cried Sidney. Where are you off to? We both of us hastened to see. He was fumbling with the latch. Before we could reach him, the door was open and he was through it. Sidney, rushing after him, caught him on the step and held him by the arm. What's the meaning of this little caper? Where do you think you're going now? Mr. Holt did not condescend to turn and look at him. He said in the same dreamy, faraway, unnatural tone of voice, and he kept his unwavering gaze fixed on what was apparently some distant object which was visible only to himself. I am going to him. He calls me. Who calls you? The Lord of the Beetle. Whether Sidney released his arm or not, I cannot say. As he spoke, he seemed to me to slip away from Sidney's grasp. Passing through the gateway, turning to the right, he commenced to retrace his steps in the direction we had come. Sidney stared after him in unequivocal amazement. Then he looked at me. Well, this is a pretty fix. Now what's to be done? What's the matter with him? I inquired. Is he mad? There's method in his madness if he is. He's in the same condition in which he was that night I saw him come out of the Apostle's window. Sidney has a horrible habit of calling Paul the Apostle. I have spoken to him about it over and over again, but my words have not made much impression. He ought to be followed. He may be sailing off to that mysterious friend of his this instant. But on the other hand, he meant, and it may be nothing but a trick of our friend the conjurer's, to get us away from this elegant abode of his. He's done me twice already. I don't want to be done again. And I distinctly do not want him to return and find me missing. He's quite capable of taking the hint and removing himself into the avikite when the clue to as pretty a mystery as ever I came across will have vanished. I can stay, I said. You, alone? He eyed me doubtingly, evidently not altogether relishing the proposition. Why not? You might send the first person you meet, policeman, cabman, or whoever it is, to keep me company. It seems a pity now that we dismissed that cab. Yes, it does seem a pity. Sidney was biting his lip. Confound that fellow, how fast he moves. Mr. Holt was already nearing the end of the road. If you think it necessary, by all means follow to see where he goes. You're sure to meet somebody whom you'll be able to send before you have gone very far. I suppose I shall. You won't mind being left alone? Why should I? I'm not a child. Mr. Holt, reaching the corner, turned it, 
and vanished out of sight. Sidney gave an exclamation of impatience. If I don't make haste, I shall lose him. I'll do as you suggest. Dispatch the first individual I come across to hold watch and ward with you. That'll be all right. He started off at a run, shouting to me as he went. It won't be five minutes before somebody comes. I waved my hand to him. I watched him till he reached the end of the road. Turning, he waved his hand to me. Then he vanished as Mr. Holt had done, and I was alone. End of chapter 30. Recording by Ruth Golding. Chapter 31 of The Beetle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. The Beetle by Richard Marsh. Chapter 31. The Terror by Day. My first impulse after Sidney's disappearance was to laugh. Why should he display anxiety on my behalf merely because I was to be the sole occupant of an otherwise empty house for a few minutes, more or less, and in broad daylight, too? To say the least, the anxiety seemed unwarranted. I lingered at the gate for a moment or two, wondering what was at the bottom of Mr. Holt's singular proceedings, and what Sidney really proposed to gain by acting as a spy upon his wanderings. Then I turned to re-enter the house. As I did so, another problem suggested itself to my mind. What connection of the slightest importance could a man in Paul Lessingham's position have with the eccentric being who had established himself in such an unsatisfactory dwelling place? Mr. Holt's story I had only dimly understood. It struck me that it would require a deal of understanding. It was more like a farrago of nonsense, an outcome of delirium, than a plain statement of solid facts. To tell the truth, Sidney had taken it more seriously than I expected. He seemed to see something in it which I emphatically did not. What was double Dutch to me seemed clear as print to him. So far as I could judge, he actually had the presumption to imagine that Paul, my Paul, Paul Lessingham, the great Paul Lessingham, was mixed up in the very mysterious adventures of poor, weak-minded, hysterical Mr. Holt, in a manner which was hardly to his credit. Of course, any idea of the kind was purely and simply balderdash, Exactly what bee Sidney had got in his bonnet I could not guess, but I did know Paul. Only let me find myself face to face with the fantastic author of Mr. Holt's weird tribulations, and I, a woman, single-handed, would do my best to show him that whoever played pranks with Paul Lessingham trifled with edged tools. I had returned to that historical front room, which, according to Mr. Holt, had been the scene of his most disastrous burglarious entry. Whoever had furnished it had had original notions of the resources of modern upholstery. 
There was not a table in the place, no chair or couch, nothing to sit down upon except the bed. On the floor there was a marvellous carpet, which was apparently of eastern manufacture. It was so thick and so pliant to the tread that moving over it was like walking on thousand-year-old turf. It was woven in gorgeous colours and covered with... When I discovered what it actually was covered with, I was conscious of a disagreeable sense of surprise. It was covered with beetles. All over it, with only a few inches of space between each, were representations of some peculiar kind of beetle. It was the same beetle over and over and over. The artist had woven his undesirable subject into the warp and woof of the material with such cunning skill that as one continued to gaze, one began to wonder if by any possibility the creatures could be alive. In spite of the softness of the texture and the art of a kind which had been displayed in the workmanship, I rapidly arrived at the conclusion that it was the most uncomfortable carpet I had ever seen. I wagged my finger at the repeated portrayals of the, to me, unspeakable insect. If I had discovered that you were there before Sidney went, I think it just possible that I should have hesitated before I let him go. Then there came a revulsion of feeling. I shook myself. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Marjorie Linden, to even think such nonsense. Are you all nerves and morbid imaginings? You who have prided yourself on being so strong-minded. A pretty sort you are to do battle for anyone. Why, they're only make-believes. Half involuntarily, I drew my foot over one of the creatures. Of course, it was nothing but imagination but I seemed to feel it squelch beneath my shoe. It was disgusting. Come, I cried. This won't do. As Sidney would phrase it, am I going to make an idiot of myself? I turned to the window, looking at my watch. It's more than five minutes ago since Sidney went. That companion of mine ought to be already on the way. I'll go and see if he is coming. I went to the gate. There was not a soul in sight. It was with such a distinct sense of disappointment that I perceived this was so, that I was in two minds what to do. To remain where I was, looking with gaping eyes for the policeman or the cabman, or whoever it was Sidney was dispatching to act as my temporary associate, was tantamount to acknowledging myself a simpleton while I was conscious of a most unmistakable reluctance to return within the house. Common sense, or what I took for common sense, however, triumphed, and after loitering for another five minutes, I did go in again. This time, ignoring to the best of my ability the beetles on the floor, I proceeded to expend my curiosity and occupy my thoughts in an examination of the bed. It only needed a very cursory examination, however, to show that the seeming bed was in reality none at all. 
Or, if it was a bed after the manner of the Easterns, it certainly was not after the fashion of the Britons. There was no framework, nothing to represent the bedstead. It was simply a heap of rugs, piled apparently indiscriminately upon the floor. A huge mass of them there seemed to be, of all sorts and shapes and sizes, and materials too. The top one was of white silk, in quality exquisite. It was of huge size, yet, with a little compression, one might almost have passed it through the proverbial wedding ring. So far as space admitted, I spread it out in front of me. In the middle was a picture. Whether it was embroidered on the substance or woven in it, I could not quite make out. Nor, at first, could I gather what it was the artist had intended to depict. There was a brilliancy about it which was rather dazzling. By degrees I realised that the lurid hues were meant for flames, and when one had got so far, one perceived that they were by no means badly imitated either. Then the meaning of the thing dawned on me. It was a representation of a human sacrifice, in its way as ghastly a piece of realism as one could see. On the right was the majestic seated figure of a goddess. Her hands were crossed upon her knees and she was naked from her waist upwards. I fancied it was meant for Isis. On her brow was perched a gaily apparelled beetle, that ubiquitous beetle, forming a bright spot of colour against her coppery skin. It was an exact reproduction of the creatures which were imaged on the carpet. In front of the idol was an enormous fiery furnace. In the very heart of the flames was an altar. On the altar was a naked white woman being burned alive. There could be no doubt as to her being alive, for she was secured by chains in such a fashion that she was permitted a certain amount of freedom of which she was availing herself to contort and twist her body into shapes which were horribly suggestive of the agony which she was enduring. The artist indeed seemed to have exhausted his powers in his efforts to convey a vivid impression of the pains which were tormenting her. A pretty picture, on my word! A pleasant taste in art the garnitures of this establishment suggest. The person who likes to live with this kind of thing, especially as a covering to his bed, must have his own notions as to what constitute agreeable surroundings. As I continued staring at the thing, all at once it seemed as if the woman on the altar moved. It was preposterous, but... She appeared to gather her limbs together and turn half over. What can be the matter with me? Am I going mad? She can't be moving. If she wasn't, then certainly something was. She was lifted right into the air. An idea occurred to me. I snatched the rug aside. The mystery was explained. 
thin, yellow, wrinkled hand was protruding from amidst the heap of rugs. It was its action which had caused the seeming movement of the figure on the altar. I stared, confounded. The hand was followed by an arm, the arm by a shoulder, the shoulder by a head, and the most awful, hideous, wicked-looking face I had ever pictured, even in my most dreadful dreams. A pair of baleful eyes were glaring up at mine. I understood the position in a flash of startled amazement. Sydney, in following Mr. Holt, had started on a wild goose chase after all. I was alone with the occupant of that mysterious house, the chief actor in Mr. Holt's astounding tale. He had been hidden in the heap of rugs all the while. End of chapter 31 and end of book 3. Recording by Ruth Golding. Recording by Anthony Wilson. The Beetle by Richard Marsh. Book 4. In Pursuit. The conclusion of the matter is extracted from the casebook of the Honorary Augustus Champnell, Confidential Agent. Chapter 32 A New Client On the afternoon of Friday, June 2nd, I was entering in my casebook some memoranda having reference to the very curious matter of the Duchess of Datchet's deed box. It was about two o'clock. Andrews came in and laid a card upon my desk. On it was inscribed, Mr. Paul Lessingham. Show Mr. Lessingham in. Andrews showed him in. I was, of course, familiar with Mr. Lessingham's appearance, but it was the first time I had had with him any personal communication. He held out his hand to me. You are Mr. Champ now? I am. I believe that I have not had the honor of meeting you before, Mr. Champ now. But with your father, the Earl of Glenlivet, I have the pleasure of some acquaintance. I bowed. He looked at me fixedly as if he were trying to make out what sort of man I was. You're very young, Mr. Champnell. I have been told that an eminent offender in that respect once asserted that youth is not of necessity a crime. And you have chosen a singular profession, one in which one hardly looks for juvenility. You yourself, Mr. Lessingham, are not old. In a statesman, one expects gray hairs. I trust that I am sufficiently ancient to be able to do you service? He smiled. I think it possible. I have heard of you more than once, Mr. Champnell, always to your advantage. My friend, Sir John Seymour, was telling me only the other day that you have recently conducted for him some business of a very delicate nature with much skill and tact, and he warmly advised me, if I ever found myself in a predicament, to come to you. I find myself in a predicament now. Again I bowed. A predicament, I fancy, of an altogether unparalleled sort. I take it that anything I may say to you will be as though it were said to a father confessor. You may rest assured of that. Good. 
Then to make the matter clear to you, I must begin by telling you a story. If I may trespass on your patience to that extent, I will endeavor not to be more verbose than the occasion requires. I offered him a chair, placing it in such a position that the light from the window would have shone full upon his face. With the calmest possible air, as if unconscious of my design, he carried the chair to the other side of my desk, twisting it right round before he sat on it, so that now the light was at his back and on my face. Crossing his legs, clasping his hands about his knee, he sat in silence for some moments, as if turning something over in his mind. He glanced around the room. I suppose, Mr. Champnell, that some singular tales have been told in here. Some very singular tales indeed. I am never appalled by singularity. It is my normal atmosphere. And yet I should be disposed to wager that you have never listened to so strange a story as that which I am about to tell you now. So astonishing indeed is the chapter in my life which I am about to open out to you, that I have more than once had to take myself to task, and fit the incidents together with mathematical accuracy in order to assure myself of its perfect truth. He paused. There was about his demeanor that suggestion of reluctance which I not uncommonly discover in individuals who are about to take the skeletons from their cupboards and parade them before my eyes. His next remark seemed to point to the fact that he perceived what was passing through my thoughts. My position is not rendered easier by the circumstance that I am not of a communicative nature. I am not in sympathy with the spirit of the age which craves for personal advertisement. I hold that the private life, even of a public man, should be held inviolate. I resent, with peculiar bitterness, the attempts of prying eyes to peer into matters which, as it seems to me, concern myself alone. You must therefore bear with me, Mr. Champnell, if I seem awkward in disclosing to you certain incidents in my career which I had hoped would continue locked in the secret depository of my own bosom, at any rate till I was carried to the grave. I am sure you will suffer me to stand excused if I frankly admit that it is only an irresistible chain of incidents which has constrained me to make you a confidant. My experience tells me, Mr. Lessingham, that no one ever does come to me until they are compelled. In that respect, I am regarded as something worse even than a medical man. A wintry smile flitted across his features. It was clear that he regarded me as a good deal worse than a medical man. Presently, he began to tell me one of the most remarkable tales which even I had heard. As he proceeded, I understood how strong and how natural had been his desire for reticence. On the mere score of credibility, he must have greatly preferred to have kept his own counsel. For my part, I own, unreservedly, that I should have deemed the tale incredible had it been told me by Tom, Dick, or Harry, instead of by Paul Lessingham. End of chapter 32